from the Gospel of Mark. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptised you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove above him. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. If you're paying attention, you'll notice that we get this reading a lot. We just had it a couple of weeks ago in Advent. I have no idea why. I know why we have it now, because we're celebrating the baptism of Jesus, but why we needed it in Advent, I could never figure out the way the lectionary works. But we do know that John the baptizer is central to all four Gospels. He's right there at the beginning in some form or another in different ways and says slightly different things in each one, but he's there and we know what happens to him or we will find out as we read the Gospels. A lot of scholars consider that perhaps John was somewhat of a sort of a theological rival, if you like, to Jesus, that as he began with his disciples, and we know that John had disciples, the Gospels tell us this, that many of those disciples left John and joined Jesus. And so there may well have been some kind of, maybe even a competition going on in the early part. And so it was important for the Gospel writers to make it clear that John was leading into the work and life of Jesus. In fact, there are still the Manichaean uh, faith in parts of northern Egypt who still follow John the Baptist and have done all of these centuries. And there's lots of things you could say about the baptism of Jesus, but one thing we often overlook is that John baptises Jesus. This is remarkable. It's remarkable that John would baptise anyone. No one baptised anyone in the ancient world. You baptised yourself. You went into the waters to wash yourself clean, to bring yourself out of the old and into the new. That's why it's better to call him John the baptizer rather than John the Baptist, because it's so remarkable. If I juggled every time I led a church service, which I can't do, so you're very lucky, but if I did, I would get soon known as, Paul, you know, the one, the juggler. It's such a remarkable thing to do. I think juggling is too, if you can do it. Um, that he would be baptising people. So he's, he's the one who does the baptising. You know, the one. He's the, not we go down and, and, and baptise ourselves, but we go down there and, and he's doing it. 
It's his distinguishing feature. It's what makes him so unusual. We know that he dresses in a way that ancient people would have understood as a marker of a prophet. He's living in the wilderness, which is a marker of a prophet. But ritual washing is an ancient practice. We know from the Old Testament, there's the story of Naaman, you know, who has leprosy. And he's told by the prophet to go and wash himself, baptise himself in the Jordan River. Women in, in Orthodox Judaism still today go to the mikveh, the special holy pool that is built, in order to wash themselves after the end of their monthly period as a cleaning of, 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 of having been in touch with blood. That's a, a real ritual uh, important thing, as did anybody, a butcher, anybody that dealt with blood had to wash themselves if you got wounded, have to wash yourselves in this ritual way. And women go to this special place. Everyone baptises themselves. So why do we know that John baptises Jesus, or anyone for that matter? And in fact, John is unsure himself because he says, look, if anybody should be baptising anyone, Jesus should be baptising me. I'm not worthy to untie the straps on his sandals. What if Jesus, in, and in one of the other Gospels, is it Matthew or Luke, he, uh, John says, I'm not going to do it. And Jesus says, no, you must. This is, this is what needs to be done for now. We don't hear that in Mark, but that's another element of it. What if Jesus is telling a truth about human life? You know the wonderful um, excerpt from the John Donne poem, No Man, <coughs> excuse me, No Man is an Island, entire of itself. He would have surely written, No Person is an Island, entire of itself, had he been writing today. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. We are not disconnected. John Donne wrote this in the 17th century, in the middle of the 17th century. He was gravely ill at the time he wrote this. He knew his own life to be on the, on the verge of death. He recovered, but not for many more years. No man is an island. I can't live this life by myself. And you can imagine John Donne is lying in bed, gravely ill. And people are doing exactly what people are doing with Peter today. You can't do it by yourself. You didn't get here by yourself. Your parents, whether they were good or bad, whether you know them or not, not didn't know them, did this work and here you are. No man is an island. What if Jesus is offering a new understanding of the experience of faith? Because there's something else he does too and it comes after this reading that we're here the next couple of weeks. He goes out and he chooses some disciples. Of course, we know that. We've been reading this for years, most of us. But it's really fascinating because that's not the way prophets and teachers and rabbis worked. They chose a student who would carry on their work. So Elijah chose Elisha. And he literally gave him the mantle, which is where we get the idea from. He places the mantle of his authority on Elisha, and Elisha becomes the new Elijah. Moses hands over the authority to Joshua. I, by the way, both these things happen at the banks of the Jordan River. The Jordan River is full of meaning for the Hebrew people. But Jesus doesn't do that. He chooses 12 people. 
And of course, we know that 12 is the number of the tribes of Israel. It's a, it's a metaphor for Jesus saying he chooses everyone. There's no one person who will follow on the work of Jesus. All of them, all 12, all the tribes of Israel, all the people are the chosen. They all will have the mantle or the imprimatur. It's quite a different way to run the world. We've just seen uh, the American election when they tried as best they could, given the circumstances, and it worked. They managed to transition power from one individual to another individual. One was, had the mantle and now another one does. And for all of how terrible it's been, the fact that it happens at all, anywhere, at any time, in a, in a, in a democratic institution is something for which we should give great thanks to God because in the history of the world, it's a rare thing. And when we do it again, and we do it, pray God, in peace and in security, that'll be something to be thankful for too. But that's not the way Jesus is working. He's developing this new community of radical equality. In the next chapter, he's in trouble because he's eating with sinners and tax collectors. Sinners and tax collectors. That's code for the great unwashed, the people who haven't done the right thing and belong. They're not us. They're not on the inn. And we know the world is divided between us, who are on the inn, and everyone else. Refugees, indigenous people, poor people, women, black people, whatever, you know, whatever divider that you've got, Jesus just seems to not care. In fact, his, the, the, the great leaders of his time go to him at one point and say, look, perhaps you don't understand. Perhaps you don't... Is it not clear to you that what you're doing is a terrible thing? You're sullying yourself. You're de demeaning your message by hanging out with people like this, sinners and tax collectors. And the disciples themselves don't even get it. A couple of chapters on from here, Jesus will find them talking about who amongst them is the greatest. Now, it could be that they're talking about, I'm better than you, but I'm much more inclined to think what they're saying is, one of us, obviously, is going to have to take the imprimatur. One of us is going to have to get the mantle. Who's it going to be? I don't mean to you know, blow my own bags, but I think it should be me. And the other said, well, you know, I, I, you've got a good claim, but you're wrong. It should be me. That makes sense. It, this, the movement has to go on. And the only way a movement goes on is when the great leader hands down to the next leader, who will hopefully be a pretty good, maybe even as good, sometimes even greater. But you've got to have that one. Jesus seems to be in no, uh, no mood to do that. And, and in fact, when he finds them doing this, he just brushes it off. So who's going to receive it? Is it going to be the richest? Is it going to be the smartest or the best looking amongst us? The most obedient to the master? This is how Jesus deals with it. He sits down and he takes a small child and he gathers that small child in his arms. This one, this child, who needs constant care, 
who needs guidance and support and encouragement and feeding and clothing and washing. This one who can't do it at all by herself or himself. This one is the one I'm calling. This is you. This is all of you. You can't do it by yourself. We are all. We are all the ones brought into this new community. Because the mantle is for all of us. And if the mantle is for all of us, then it puts an end to so many things. It puts an end to your need, my need, to measure myself against other people. To see whether or not, how, to see how often and where I'm failing against my perception of how other people are living their lives. It puts an end to the need for me to hide myself for fear of rejection by others. If you knew what I really thought, if you knew how I really felt, if you knew what I really was like inside, you wouldn't want to be with me. So therefore I will be a kind of person I think that you might like to put up with. It puts an end to all of that. Surely because all of us are welcome. How do you get to be in the community of God? You put your hand on your heart, check if you're still, it's still beating. Yep, I'm in. That's it. When it stops beating, well, we can worry about that later. And it seems, from the way the scriptures talk and the way Jesus talk, well, that, that's all taken care of too. But for now, where is it? Yeah, there it is. I'm in. That's what it's saying. Jesus' baptism, our baptism, the baptism that we would have done and will do for little Benjamin, hopefully, when things settle down in Queensland, is a welcome in to the beloved. You are my beloved. Martin Luther King spoke constantly about the beloved community. Here's a little quote to end with that is so relevant to what we just saw happen in horror in the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. He said this in 1957. Love is creative and redemptive. Love builds up and unites. Hate tears down and destroys. The aftermath of the fight fire with fire method, which you are suggesting, is bitterness and chaos. The aftermath of the love method is reconciliation and the creation of the beloved community. Reconciliation and the creation of the beloved community. Welcome.